0: everyone, this is Ankur Zoshi. I'm the founder and CEO of Nuclear. We are a fintech company where we work with banks like Federal Bank and deploy our fintech products uh, across across the industry. Today, I am privileged to have uh, Shalini Warrior, who is the ED uh, of Federal Bank, on our podcast. Uh, Shalini has been a constant support and a mentor for us, and it is a great honor for me to finally get to speak to her and invite her on our podcast. Ma'am, thank you so much for giving us your time and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ankur. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I know we've interacted extensively in the course of uh, the stuff we work with nuclear on, but this is kind of a very, very different forum. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank
0: you. Awesome. Same here, same here, ma'am. So ma'am, we were discussing just before we started recording that we wanted to understand uh, more about your journey, More about where you came from, how you went about your journey, your mental models, your frameworks, which you used over the course of, uh, you know, a lot of decision making, which went into, uh, you know, you working across so many countries, so many verticals, right? But before all that happened, we wanted to go back to your formative years, your, where you came from, your family background, what led to you uh, following this path? So if we can, you know, delve deeper into that, that would be wonderful.
1: Um, uh, Thanks Ankur and um, you know actually I come from a normal middle class family like I think a lot of us in India do Um, and uh, to a very large extent whatever has been my kind of journey has been shaped by the family background a set of strong parents and a sister who's um, you know a doctor and quite um, uh, devoted to that profession so that's really uh, shaped up I think three or four attributes that I would say have been kind of embedded in me from a very, very young age. One is I think there is no substitute for hard work. I think that has been something that has been always uh, kind of ingrained in me. Um, A very large amount of focus and attention on discipline and how do you make sure that you follow a kind of a disciplined routine and whatever we do. And I think the third one I would say is really opportunities and not letting go of opportunities when they come and seeking out opportunities for changes to be made so why do i say this so i just go back um you know i kind of did a large part of my schooling in um, chennai and a large part of my kind of college education and my chartered accountancy in bangalore so those were the two main places that i kind of spent a large part of my formative years on um i distinctly remember initially saying that i would like to be a teacher But somewhere along the way, I think I gave up that. No disrespect for the profession, and even today, I enjoy taking classes for people on the go, et cetera. Uh, But I just realized it was probably not my cup of tea from a point of view of a career standpoint. And typically in those days, um, you know, you're too young to probably uh, reflect on those days. But in those days, it was either an engineer or a doctor. You know, that was typically what most people would follow. My sister was, you know, going the medical stream, so I didn't want to do that. And I somehow thought I wouldn't be a failure as an engineer. No disrespect again to that profession, but I just didn't think I had it in me. But um, I realized that, you know, I had a flair for numbers. I liked, um, you know, kind of analytics around the numbers, etc. And that's when I chose to become a chartered accountant, and I kind of, um, you know, embedded myself into that profession. While I was doing my CA itself maybe I was kind of, you know, quite self-confident and assured. I was very clear that I would not go, I would not become a chartered accountant in practice. I always knew that financial services was where I wanted to be. And that's how, as soon as I qualified as a chartered accountant, I decided to join a bank and I joined Standard Chartered Bank. Um, so I did 25 years with Standard Chartered Bank. But when I started as a st- in Standard Chartered Bank, it was as a management trainee. And as a management trainee, you go through the grind. Um, you know, there have been days when I've uh, reconciled vouchers, when I've done back of vouchers, when I've um, done audit of various things, various roles in the initial few years, because I honestly believe that anybody who's come coming into a career should not come in with a preconceived notion that this is the only thing they will do, particularly in the first five to seven years. So I believe in that and I practiced that in my first five to seven years. So it was only after about five or seven years that I realized my cup of tea was really around anything to do with um, you know a con, con- confluence or a con- um, you know congregation between operations, technology, business, anything that brought all these things together because it it seemed to resonate with me that it would have more um, operational stuff, technical stuff, but also a lot of people related stuff. So somewhere along the way I took the route of um, you know while my core competence was uh, still finance and um, you know that kind of stuff being a chartered accountant i didn't actually do a core finance role i moved into ops i moved into technology i moved into service delivery with a lot of customer service related aspects where you get the brickbats and the bookcase from customers but you know i took my thrills from there and i think to be fair standard chartered had a lot of opportunities that they threw at me you know um, and i was willing and able to pick up those opportunities so i did the first 15 years really with standard chartered in india
0: Generally, if I look at a lot of bankers, uh, young bankers who have just joined the banks, uh, they come, as you rightly mentioned, that they come with a preconceived notion that credit is something where I want to go deep into, or uh, you know, deposits is something where I want to go deep into, or investment banking is something where I want to go deep into, or treasury, right? Was that a deliberate choice at your end to do multiple verticals? Uh, in order to diversify your skill set, in order to keep a lot of options open for yourself rather than siloing, be- becoming siloed into a particular vertical?
1: Yes. Um, so, Ankur, you're right. A lot of people join banking with this uh, notion that, you know, treasury is where I want to be in. As you said, you know, these are the specialist areas. But uh, when I came in and in the first five or six years, I kind of made it very clear to everybody who I was working with and my bosses that I want to experiment. I want to try different things. So I started with actually something as inane as internal audit and I started kind of learned my ropes out there. But then I uh, got an opportunity to move into the credit card business which Standard Chartered was uh, forming at that point of time. It was a new business and the bank was Um, entering into the business so i got this opportunity to move into the credit card business which i thought was a huge opportunity because building something new is always very unique and special so i moved into the credit card business and within that business i did various roles once i got into that business i realized that my flair and my kind of um you know what i really enjoyed doing was Um, dealing with multiple customers, dealing with multiple people, dealing with um, the the volume of stuff that one has to handle rather than being, um, you know, more narrowly focused on a high value, small number, you know, so clearly in my mind, retail and anything to do with retail resonated much more. So then I said it was after about four or five years that I decided and I made a conscious choice to say I would focus on anything to do with retail not focus on uh, wholesale but within retail I've done various roles so within retail I've done business roles I've done operations I've done technology I've done customer service I've done some finance I've done um, various roles within retail so that's how in the first five years Um, And uh, so it was literally uh, you know, started with being an experimentation, which I what I encourage people to do. So a lot of probationary officers join Federal Bank about 1000 of them every year. When I chat with them, I say, you know, take the first four or five years in your stride. Try various things. The bank will throw you opportunities. It may be in a rural branch, it may be in uh, risk management, it may be in operations, it may be in technology. Go ahead, do it with your full gusto, do it with devotion. You will learn something. Don't form a notion that says, I do want to be in corporate. After four, five years, I think it's fair, you'll start getting a much better idea. So my journey was exactly that. And it was after four, five years that I decided, Retail is where I really enjoy and what I'd like doing. Not to say um, I don't, in my current role, I do oversee some parts of wholesale in my ops role I've done it, but somehow I get my uh, kick out of retail.
0: So I think the fact that you had such a wide uh, view of the banking ecosystem, right, across operations, across technology, across retail, across wholesale, treasury, that had a big role to play into you being made the CEO of SE, Standard Char- Stancy Brunei, right? Because yeah. uh, a lot of times we also internally speak about being a <clears throat> having a diversified skill sets <clears throat> rather than being a single vertical specialist, right? So being a generalist so, rather than a specialist.
1: Yeah, it's always important, in, uh, particularly in banking industry. I'm sure it's true for many other industries, but I know banking is a thing to be um, to be aware of what's happening everywhere. You may choose to say that this is what I enjoy doing. Like I chose to say that retail is what I enjoy doing, but that doesn't mean I do not know enough about wholesale. I do not have an appreciation of wholesale. I can understand it and you're right. That's what uh, makes you kind of move up into a role of a CEO or you know, the kind of role I'm doing right now as an executive director, etc. So yes, you're right about it. That um, you know makes it rounded. But it's also the individual concern, right? Ankur, you have to look for those opportunities. The bank uh, can only do this much. It's up to you. If the bank is coming, you know, 5% of the way, it's really up to you to do the uh, uh, 95%, you know?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And was the choice to work across multiple countries uh, with Stancy also with the same, uh, you know, direction to diversify experience because yes. when you go into different countries, as you rightly said that, when you immerse yourself in the social fabric of that country, you acquire a lot of cultural nuances, you acquire a lot of, uh, you know, cultural wealth.
1: Yeah, yeah. So again, um, uh, two sides of it. Yes, it was a conscious decision on my part, because I'd reached a stage where I think opportunities were getting to be a little stale, etc. And would have been more of the same. So there was some part of me seeking out new challenges and new uh, new opportunities and the bank was also kind of open to give me those opportunities so for the bank it was as much as a risk for the bank to take me and put me in Brunei as it was for me to go to Brunei so I think it was a meeting of both there and I think that's the point that I keep harping to um, in a lot of my kind of discussions with people saying it takes two to tango it takes two to clap So yes, the bank will throw opportunities, but it's up to you to pick it up. If at that point I had chosen not to do that for whatever reason, I'm sure the bank would have given me something else, but it may have gone a very, very different route. Today I can very justifiably be proud of kind of the learnings I've had from working in a Brunei, working in Indonesia, working in a Dubai, which are some extent offbeat. And the first couple of years being Brunei Indonesia was very uh, helpful, Ankur, because again, you know what happens is if you go to a Singapore first, you tend to then, I must admit, stay there itself, you know, so I would have stayed in Singapore and probably very, very different route. But the fact that I went to a Brunei first and then in Indonesia and then only got to Singapore gave me a very, very different perspective. Um, I acquired I um, acquired a lot of friends in one in both places, but more importantly, I acquired the, the ethos and philosophy of some of these countries, you know, that I can relate to even now.
0: Okay, okay. Also, because I believe Singapore and Dubai were the safer choice, right? They were more in the comfort zone. Brunei and Indonesia were outside the comfort zone. So, that also accelerates your learning, right? As you rightly said that you learned a lot across these. Now, Mm -hmm. one of the perceptions which gets formed uh, around a lot of successful leaders and you have been an extremely successful, uh, you have had an extremely successful career and extremely successful leader, someone which I obviously look up to, right? Along the way, uh, there are a lot of points, pivotal moments where you learn a lot, right? Uh, There are a lot of ups and downs. Uh, I want to delve deeper into some of the failures that you have had, which have taught you uh, big lessons and what is one of your favorite failures, right? Because personally speaking, I love to fail because it teaches you a lot of things, right? Because on those learnings, you are able to then, uh, you know, make sure that you don't repeat those mistakes in the future.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I presume it's quite a cliche, right? Failure is a stepping stone to success. That's what people say, et cetera. But it's, I think, quite true. And uh, I think um, now, you know, racking my brains to think of a a couple of examples, but I'll probably start with something more recent as, um, you know, four years back actually, and then, you know, tell you about a couple of other instances also. And, um, you know, I have a couple of them on the professional side, a couple of them on the personal side, so I'll probably cover both of them. Yeah. Uh, First on the professional side, Ankur, uh, and I'll talk about August 2018 um, in my current role when I moved into federal and I was in federal. I had been in federal for about three years. August 2018 for uh, the audience and you might remember, Kerala went through one of its worst floods. Um, and um, it was um, really very bad, um, once in a hundred years kind of an event, etc. And Aluwa, the head office which you've uh, visited, was literally at the epicenter of that, um, you know, floods. We really got impacted. So I live over here, so there was, <clears throat> on the personal side, there was a lot of stuff uh, with, you know, the house getting uh, flooded, people, uh, me and, you know, my family having to be rescued, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was happening at one end. But the bank was also quite seriously impacted because of the data center and, you know, the data center getting having to be brought down. And while we had disaster recovery capability and we had switched a lot to disaster recovery capability, the fact remains that when you have a crisis of this nature, it's not likely you'll be able to do everything um, according to the rule book. You know, So we did have a situation where, um, you know, we had a lot of customer issues. Uh, We had a lot of, um, uh, you know, feedback from customers that transactions were not getting processed, etc. And you should see this in the context of the fact that, um, you know, it was preceding um, Ramzan and Onam, which were big events for anybody in the calendar, particularly for people in Kerala. It was very, very focused on Kerala, so the rest of the country and abroad were not able to kind of recognize what uh, the people were going through. Most of my people were impacted with all the floods, et cetera. And in the midst of that, there was these customer service issues. And we had a lot of partners not happy with us, et cetera. I think that was literally very much of an eye opener for us in the bank and for me personally on what is really this whole capability of disaster recovery business continuity. It brought it into a very practical level because until then, it had all been uh, to some extent theoretical. And that learning, I think, is once in a lifetime. And I do. I don't wish it on anybody. I don't wish it on my, ourselves, uh, not I wish it on anybody, but I think it was a, we literally had to grapple with a lot of issues from a personal front, from a professional front, and since then we've made a lot of progress, um, I think. So I think that was one learning that I think I will treasure in the fact that from a professional standpoint, resilience, stability counts for a very, very lot because we live in very uncertain times. So that I think was one. Um, the second was more personal and this was after my Brunei stint, I did move to Jakarta and I meant to into a role which was a very uh, reasonably complex role. So I was uh, seconded from uh, set standard chartered bank into a local bank called Permata, and um, that bank was, um, you know, um, it was a mer- amalgamation of five other banks, literally, and uh, it had come together as five banks coming together through the South Asian crisis, etc. They had come together and uh, become a per, uh, you know bank called Permata, which had uh, Standard Chartered holding shares and another local Indonesian conglomerate holding shares. So that was how that had, that bank had come together. Um, in that, um, you know, we had to do a lot of work around. Um, restructuring the organization and they're not very easy. You know, we had to let go of people. We had to um, close branches. We had to do a lot of kind of tough decisions that had to be made. And here I was like an imported from uh, Standard Chartered with no knowledge of the local language with no thing. So those were really very, very tough times that we went through. But how did I, and you know, there were days when it used to be quite difficult dealing with the union, dealing with the people, etc. But I think the learning I took from there was empathy makes a big, big difference in situations of that nature. So I kind of invested time and energy in actually learning the local language by, you know, learning Bahasa Indonesia by spending time on it. One whole week of an immersion program in Bahasa Indonesia, followed by Saturday lessons when you know I sat and spent two, three hours on it, practiced it as much as possible, etc. So I think the point that I made on that one is. Um, there were some failures, some successes in that, and some things we did well, some things we didn't do well. But I think the broader point was anything of this nature, which involves a re- recalibration of a business, anything which involves a reset of a business needs, which has a people impact, needs a lot of empathy, needs a lot of, um, you know, it's not sympathy, actually, it's really about empathy. So I think that was one of the learnings I took from that. And those um, have helped me in instead quite well. Uh,
0: through the journey. I hope I've kind of addressed your question, Uncle. Yeah, no, of course, of course, of course. Along this way, when you were going through certain low points, uh, uh, whether it was 2018, I clearly remember that uh, month and that duration because I was in touch with Jiteshara and know that he was on, literally on boats going from house to house saving. And a lot of people from Federal Bank were not just working to make sure that the bank was up and running, but also you know, helping the local community because it was a terrible, terrible event, right? And as you rightly said, it was a Blackstone event. Uh, During such times, there are a lot of uh, frameworks, decision-making frameworks, or, you know, people who help us, right? Uh, Historically, what have been like one or three, one to three people or books or authors who have had a great influence on your life and, you know, helped, help form your personality, help form your frameworks and mental models.
1: <clears throat> I've, um, I'll talk about people first, course, uh, and I've had uh, the fortune over the last so many years of my work ex-ad prior to that of being, you know, kind of exposed to very, very, very people. Um, obviously, in the formative years, as is typical for most people, it would be parents, and I think I attribute a lot of that to my parents and my sister, etc., who've kind of embedded in me a lot of the uh, a lot of the principles by which I live my life. But I think on a more professional front, um, again, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to have some formal mentors when I was in standard chartered who have really been very useful. But I think one person will stand out in my view, um, who was my boss for a very long time and is a close friend also. And I think it's more the attributes of what that person, um, you know, brought to the table um, a very, very um, a high level of discipline, and that's something I have always embedded in my life and, you know, tend to try and make sure I'm very, very, so very, very high level of discipline. Um, some of the tenets he taught me, for example, was, um, you know, he, he used to keep telling me, schedule your priorities, don't prioritize your schedule, which means me very, very clear what you want to do and make sure that is in your schedule. The rest of the time you can then work on what other people want you to do, but otherwise you will get overcome by what other people want to do. So schedule your priorities and make sure they're there, which is something I practice even now, and you may be familiar with the fact that, you know, the discipline of the steering committees, the discipline of my partner meetings, etc. is coming out of that. So that was one, the discipline. The other was the fact that a uh, very, very strong people management skills. And I don't mean people management skills only in the rah kind of form, which is also useful and required, but more at a deeper level, you know, understanding what the team is, what the composition of the team is, what do they bring to the table, what, which areas do they need more empowerment in and they can be left to do things on their own, which areas do they need help on and support on. Uh, how do we make sure that um, anything good is really the team's success but um, you know if anything goes wrong it's really your own responsibility meaning the leader's responsibility so some of these tenets that he's um, kind of embedded in me uh, over the formative years of my professional career have stood me in good stead so he's uh, the kind of go-to person uh, I call the 3 a.m friend right Um, somebody you can go to even at three in the morning if something were to go wrong god forbid so I think that really has influenced a lot of what I do in my professional career. And, uh, and there have been many, many more people. My my current boss, who you've had the fortune of meeting, uh, Sham is uh, clearly a hugely people-centric business that he has built. And, you know, the innovation he's brought in have been, again, tenants. But I think, yeah, so at various points in time, various people have influenced me. And I think I take some learning from a lot of them right uh you can never be a copy of anybody else uncle. Cool. so yeah. you know I can never be you know x or y or z I am me but I have attributes of a attributes of b that I try to bring together and there are areas where I probably need to do more on but I think that's really what's influenced me and what I tell my team when I talk to them is um this is not about aping somebody this is not about copying somebody that's not really what is required but Listen to people, um, learn from them, pick up one or two attributes from each of them that you think is, you know, something that you can embed in. And that's how it takes. Insofar as books and authors are concerned, I read an eclectic mix, um, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I read everything that comes my way. Uh, the best way to relax at the end of a long working day, uh, read fiction. That's been, you know, the from the John Grisham's to the Jeffrey Archer's to the David Baldashi's I do all of that stuff because they let me um, kind of get away from you know the stuff that happens in the office but i think more um you know i obviously switch between them and some of the other stuff that we read. but i think there are the classics good to great uh, from jim collins and all of that uh, but there's no substitute to learning from observing people interacting with people i believe there's huge value in that books etc can help but nothing can and substitute the the physical interactions that one has with
0: people awesome awesome that's a great answer that's a great answer when we spoke you spoke about empathy and i have known you for many years now and i know you are an extremely humble person right (laughs) Uh, adding to those two qualities right what do you think makes a good leader empathy is important humbleness is important Uh, People management skills is important, and that's exactly what we spoke about empathizing with the people who work with you, right? What other skills you think are necessary to become a good leader?
1: I think increasingly one skill that is really becoming important for a leader is uh, what I call unlearn, relearn, and uh, learn. Learn, unlearn, relearn in whichever order and priority that is there. Uh, The world is changing so much, Ankur, right now that as a leader, it's impossible for us to, you know, be at the top of everything unless one is continuously learning. And there is an angle of the humility aspect on it, which is what I at least practice, which is reverse monitoring, uh, sorry, mentoring, if, if I can use a term of that nature. I have, I'm absolutely no um, ego about asking the youngest guy in my digital center of excellence team to come and sit here with me and explain what chat GPT is about or what metaverse is about. I mean, you know, one of the boys in the team, probably less than half my age. Um, is constantly being told, OK, you need to take a lesson for us on metaverse and tell us what we can do with metaverse. So I think that whole learning, relearning, unlearning is extremely important, not just for a leader, for anybody, but particularly for a leader because you've got to be a role model for people. Uh, you can't be out of sync with people when somebody's talking about a chat GPT or a metaverse or somebody's So even talking about football for that matter, which I don't follow much of, I must admit, but, uh, Thing. So I think that whole aspect is there. In addition to all that you said, you know, which we've discussed, like empathy, you know, prioritization, discipline, focus. And the other is, um, you know, how do you take more responsibility for the actions of the team? Uh, empower, yes, we should, but at the end of the day, uh, realize the fact that you know the buck has to stop with you, and that's a, that's a hugely uh, beneficial attribute in my view for leaders to be um, absolutely open about the fact that, yes, I'm empowering the team, but the accountability rests with me. The ultimately the, um, you know, God forbid something goes wrong, I'm accountable for it. I think that high level of accountability for actions is another attribute that I respect in leaders. And I think my, you know, I would expect my team to expect that from me.
0: Awesome, that's a amazing answer, ma'am. I'm really glad to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming onto to the podcast. One last question for you. Yeah. What is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you?
1: Oh, God, that takes a little bit of thinking because I think uh, life consists of a lot of them, I would think. But, but some things that stand out, I must admit, is, um, you know, again, a um, couple of instances. I think if I go back in time to actually 2004, um, you know, I lost my father after a very brief illness. It wasn't a very long time, but I think what I mean, stood out for me was a couple of my friends and, um, you know, my boss actually flew down all the way from Mumbai into Kerala. It was in a remote place in Kerala that this had happened and spent an entire day just with me, you know um in the midst of all their busy schedules etc the three of them actually took a flight they had no clue how to get to the place because it is a remote place but um they did all the necessary homework and this is in a day and age when google maps etc were not so prominent and whatsapp was not something but i think that stood with me you know the fact that uh, i've kind of embedded that to say that i may not be able to attend a wedding but god forbid if there is a bereavement that's the time when people actually need you and i think that kindness place a lot. The other was really, again, coming back to the floods are uh, day we the floods happened and <coughs> we had to be rescued from home. So we were rescued from home and we were actually taken to a convent and that the sisters in the convent were extremely kind. They made sure we had hot water, food, a bed to stay. In. They had no idea who we were. And that was, I think, a hugely kind gesture from them so i think there are many such examples but these two stood out for me thank you so
0: much ma'am for having this conversation really appreciate the time you gave us uh, it was a wonderful and enlightening conversation and once again thanks for coming on to the podcast
1: thank you very much ankur i i love the format of the podcast and i love what you're doing with embedding this amongst the people so thank you very much for the opportunity and we'll be in touch thank you
0: awesome awesome thank you ma'am